starting in verse 21. If you just turn with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We've gotten a little bit of a late start, so I'll preach fast. You guys believe me? Now I'll do what I can. All right, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let me pray. Lord, we, uh, we need you this morning. Uh, Lord, we don't just ask for your spirit to send revival to our hearts and minds, to our city, to our nation. Lord, uh, because we'd like it, but Lord, we need it. We need your spirit to be poured out on us. We are really desperate without him and his work in our lives. Lord, we need him to, uh, we not only need him to regenerate us, Lord, and to regenerate the hearts of those who do not know you, but Lord, we needed him to obviously indwell us and seal us and Lord, empower us for ministry. And we need him to illumine our minds so that we understand this text. And we need him to continue to soften our hearts so that we love it. And so that we want to proclaim your son's name to the ends of the earth. So Lord, we ask you to send your spirit on us so that we, so that we would know you and love you rightly. And we would understand your word. And Lord, that we would desire to declare it to others. For your glory's sake. Amen. Well, uh, you know, different people get different kinds of license plates. You know, they put things on their specialized license plate. Like some people I know that will remain nameless, like to put characters from certain movies or books on their license plates. Um, You know, and uh, some people like to put different sorts of... uh, You know, little sayings, some of which you never understand, right? You're not exactly sure. I want to put one that nobody would, most people wouldn't understand. If I had my pick, I I have one that I'd want to put on mine. Um, It's sola fide. But that's eight letters. You can't do eight, can you? Can you do eight? 
Uh, you can't. You can only do seven, right? Kevin keeps telling me if you pay enough, you can actually do eight. I don't think you can, though. I think you can only do seven, right? But sola fide is what I'd want to put across my license plate. I, I, I am so exuberant about that phrase sola fide in the Latin that um, I talked about it so much as a high school pastor that one of my high school students actually went out and had it tattooed across his back. <laughs> And I started laughing. I was like, just what the reformers would have wanted, you know, <laughs> just, they would have been so excited about that. But why sola fide? What does that phrase even mean? The phrase means faith alone. Faith alone. Sola fide is, is the Latin for the phrase faith alone. Um, and that phrase sola fide or faith alone has fallen on hard times in recent church history. It's really fallen on hard times. It's the doctrine that men are declared righteous by God through faith alone, apart from any works. It was championed by those who started what came to be known as the Protestant Reformation. In fact, it was the rallying cry for the reformers, was it not? Faith alone, sola fide. They had five solas. Do you guys know what they are? Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Sola fide, which is faith alone. Sola Christu, which is Christ alone. Sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. And soli dea gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. Those were the five solas of the Reformation. But the most central sola, the most central alone that they focused on, that really brought about the Protestant Reformation was faith alone. It was really appealed to because the reformers wanted the Roman Catholic Church at the time to return to the doctrine of the gospel as preached in the Bible. They didn't want to bolt from the Catholic Church. They didn't want to destroy it or overthrow it. They wanted it to be reformed. So they would return to the gospel of the Bible. The reformers considered this doctrine so important that Martin Luther, who was one of the main reformers, called it the article by which the church stands or falls. The article by which the church stands or falls. Calvin, another reformer in Geneva, John Calvin, called it the main hinge on which religion turns. The main hinge on which religion turns. Yet this doctrine of justification by faith alone or sola fide has become little more really than a relic of Protestant history, hasn't it? It's just kind of a relic of our history. Many churches no longer even understand what justification is, let alone what faith is. Since I already dealt with justification three sermons ago, I dealt with the doctrine of justification. Okay, and you guys can pick up a copy of that, but it, I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell and I'm not going to spend much more time on it. The doctrine of justification is this. God, by a judicial act, declares us righteous in Christ. Although we are not in fact righteous, we are sinners. God, by a judicial act, declares us to be righteous in Christ. That's justification. He forgives us our sins and he declares us righteous. It's a foreign righteousness. And you receive it through faith and faith alone in Christ. Understanding that, then I want to turn to the concept of faith. I mean, what is faith? If faith alone is how we receive that justification, then what is faith? 
Well, if you, what does the Bible teach or mean when it says we're justified by faith alone? And some people will say, well, that phrase, faith alone, is never in the Bible. That specific phrase. And they're correct, it isn't. But it says over and over and over again that justification comes through faith. And Paul even says in verse 28 of this chapter, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That is just faith, only faith. What is it? What is this faith? What does it mean to be declared righteous apart from the works of the law? What does it mean to believe? I I actually thought about um, how twisted this concept is of faith in the Protestant world today. Um, so, so twisted that I actually considered calling uh, the sermon um, the twisted hinge, right? Playing off of Calvin's statement that faith is the hinge on which religion turns. It's kind of become this twisted hinge. We misunderstand the whole idea of faith. We all misunderstand the whole idea of doc- the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In fact, it's not even recognizable to most Christians, And certainly, I'll tell you this, certainly the manner in which faith is taught today would not have been recognizable to most of the reformers. So before we jump into what faith actually is, let me provide you with some perverted ideas about faith that exists in the church. Now, people automatically say, okay, you're going to answer the question about what is faith. Yes, I am. But I'm going to answer it first by talking about perverted ideas of faith that exist. Why? Because I want to just dog out other churches or other beliefs. No, here's why. If I talk about faith alone and I do not dispel what is the predominant cultural ideas or religious ideas that exist out there about what faith is, then what can often happen is a kind of syncretism. You know what syncretism is? It's when two religious ideas come together and mix into some kind of hybrid, right? Some kind of hybrid idea. What can occur is I can say you're saved by faith alone, saved by faith alone, and you pour all kinds of meaning into what faith means. And you don't exactly understand what I'm saying the Bible's meaning by faith. So I have to dispel the wrong ideas about faith and then on the positive side tell you what the right ideas about faith are so that we make sure that we get this doctrine right. It's not just because I want to jump down the throat of people who are wrong. I really don't. I wish I didn't have to do this, frankly. I wish that this concept hadn't become so corrupted because it's so basic. And I wish it hadn't become so corrupted that we have to do this, that people are so confused about what faith is. You guys all recognize a lot of this confusion. Um, So what are some false views? The first one I'm going to talk about because it's in the context of this is the Roman Catholic view. And the Roman Catholic view is probably the best of the false views that we'll talk about of faith. Here's what they argue. They argue that faith and love are essentially interchangeable. Faith and love are essentially interchangeable. In other words, it's faith working itself out through love that justifies. Did you hear that? That sounds a lot like Galatians 5, doesn't it? Right? All that matter, neither circumcision or uncircumcision matters. All that matters is what? Faith working itself out through love. And so what they say is, that faith and love are interchangeable concepts and that what matters is faith working itself out through love. That's how you're justified. 
However, we must understand that while true faith does work itself out in love, that's a true statement. Faith does work itself out in love. It is not faith working itself out in love that justifies. You're saved by faith. Faith alone justifies you. That kind of faith does work itself out in love, but it's not once it's worked itself out in love that you become justified. This is where the Roman Catholic position misses the point. This is where it's incorrect. They're right that faith the, or a consequence of true faith is what? Love. Good works that come out in love. That's a consequence. However, the good works that are a consequence of faith, right? The good works that are a consequence are not themselves a condition for your salvation. Faith alone is the necessary condition for salvation. Love is the necessary consequence of salvation. Those are different, aren't they? So when you believe love will result. However, the result should not be confused with the effect. Right? The result should not be confused with the effect. If we mix these two, people begin to believe that there's some merit in their faith. They'll believe that in some way faith has earned them something, won't they? That faith is some virtue that God must reward. In fact, uh, that's just what's happened in many cases. The Roman Catholic view has actually become um, even worse in the popular American Protestant circles. You know that? It's been worsened. In the popular American or popular view in American Christianity is that faith is some sort of self-generated virtue that God must respond to or reward with eternal life. It's like God's chew toy or something. Come and get it, right? As soon as I get faith, God's going to come after it. They treat faith as if it's some virtuous act that indebts God to us. I believe now he's indebted to me. He must save me now. Look, faith is just receiving. It's not a virtuous act that indebts God to you. It's receiving. It's recognizing you can do nothing, that you justly deserve God's wrath and that your only hope is Jesus. It's not something you can generate and then get rid of. And thus God can at one time owe you salvation and then you get rid of. And now later, because you got rid of your faith, He owes you damnation and then you can get your faith back and now he owes you again. Like you have some sort of, um, you know, you you guys have been in these kind of uh, marriage seminars where they talk about love banks, right? You can put love in your, you know, you you do loving acts for your wife and then you build up credit in your love bank. You know what I'm talking about? And then when you do something stupid, you're making a withdrawal from the love bank and right. You want to make sure that you don't do enough stupid things to empty out your love bank. Right. Cause then maybe divorce happens. Right. And so you keep building into the love bank and you know, that kind of thing. Look, that's not how a relationship with God works. You're not building up a love bank with God and then making withdrawals and hoping you don't run out. The third view and perhaps the greatest heresy regarding faith is that of Kenneth Copeland and the word of faith movement that follows him. They teach that faith is a force that you can manipulate with your words. 
kind of like Star Wars. I'm serious. You think I'm kidding? If you positively confess something, it'll happen. You can literally control your future by speaking it into existence. They say that God created. He actually said this. I've heard him. God created using the force of faith and we can do the same. We can create using the force of faith. We can use faith to do whatever we, what, whatever we want done. I've actually heard him say that, um, that it's really faithless to say God's will be done. That's faithless. Heard him say that Job belongs in the faith hall of shame. Because he wanted God's will and not his own. I heard one of his former associate pastors, and this is the first time I'm ever going to name a local pastor and may be one of the last in town. Billy Rash on TV. Watch. I was watching this program on TV and I, I like Billy personally. We get along. But I heard him say on TV that we can and should command God. We command God to do what we want. That's atrocious. That's dangerous. See, they see faith like a force and words are the containers of that force. And as we speak something, it happens. If you keep saying, I've, I've heard them use this example. I'm afraid to go to the mall at night because I'm going to get mugged. Then you'll get mugged. And you'll get mugged because you kept speaking that reality into existence. You know, we see this superstitious pagan occultic worldview pop up in our own lives, though, don't we? Here, here's how I see it. I, I've, I've had this happen with people, um, you know, and, and this is how it goes. You go to say something like that'll never happen. And they're like, Shh, don't say that might happen. Right. Or Shh, knock on wood. Quick, quick. What is that? Well, what does that even mean? Knock on wood. What is there? Some kind of we some kind of spiritist, you know, God is up there and we, we said something and now he's going to, he's going to, you know, make it happen and we better knock on wood quick. So he'll get off our, I don't even get that. This isn't how God works. He doesn't do your bidding. You're saying something doesn't make it happen. God does what God's going to do after the counsel of his own will. Period. Perhaps, however, the most insidious and dangerous view of faith. The most insidious and dangerous view of faith in evangelical is the idea that we just need to believe in something. In other words, faith is just good and we should believe in something or someone, whatever it is. Believing gives us hope and hope makes us happy and happiness in this life really is the end goal of this life. We hear statements like, well, it's good that you believe something. Or you just got to have faith. Right. Thanks, George Michael. If you guys aren't children of the 80s, sorry. Or as long as you believe, as long as your belief makes you happy, that's fine. Right? The most popular and extreme teacher of this view of faith is Joel Osteen. You guys have heard of him? 
He's the single most popular pastor in America and, and potentially the world. You guys know that on an average, he has 42,000 people attend his church every Sunday on average. And they say somewhere between six and 10 million people who watch him on television. He's written two books. The first, which was a New York Times bestseller um, called Your Best Life Now. And the second just came out. I think it's called Becoming a Better You. Is that right? Becoming a Better You. He got a $13 million advance, just a side note. I don't know why I'm telling you, but for that book, I guess if you write on this topic, it's pretty popular. But essentially, Joel teaches that God wants you to be happy in this life. And you have to believe. Have you guys seen this onslaught of media that's been about him this week? It's complete onslaught. He's been in everything because they're talking all about this new book that came out. You just have to believe, have positive thoughts. It's what you have to do. Faith is just really another word for positive thinking. When challenged on people of other belief systems and even atheists, he was asked this question. Somebody called up to the show to Larry King live. He was on Larry King live. I, I watched this whole interview before he's on Larry King live. Somebody calls up and says, well, Joel, uh, I may have told you guys about this before. Well, Joel, um, I, I noticed you kind of dodged the issue of the gospel. And what happens to people who don't believe in Jesus Christ? And he said, well, who am I to say, who am I to judge? And, uh, Larry King looks at him and says, well, Joel, don't Christians believe that, and Larry King gets the gospel better than Joel does. Don't Christians believe that only Jesus saves and apart from him, you're damned. And Joel goes, well, Larry, you know, as long as they're sincere, who am I to judge? And so Larry says, well, Joel, what about like Hindus? Well, if, as long as they're sincere, Joel, what about, you know, and here, here he goes. This is, this is the, the kicker. What about atheists? Well, Larry, as, as long as they're sincere and their belief, as long as they're sincere, what does that even mean? Can you believe anything and be saved as long as you're sincere in your beliefs? Well, apparently you can if you think that God must accept those with positive attitudes, even if their positivity is that God doesn't exist. Look, for faith to be biblical, the God of the Bible has to be its object. The God of the Bible has to be its object. You have to believe in Jesus and his gospel. The faith in faith. You have faith in God. But with this kind of trivialization and marketing of, of Christianity, it's really no wonder that people are running back to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy in, in really record numbers. At least there's some substance there. So if these are not examples of what faith is, then what is it? And what is faith? Well, um, look at the text with me here. We'll try to get to it some, but... I want to start off here with uh, verse 21, where he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law or oh, the law and prophets bear witness to it. And look what he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And the Greek there is a present tense. So it's all who are believing for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. And this same word is uh, they use for by here. It's actually the same Greek word as in 22 really should be translated through faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then he goes down, look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And look down at verse 30. So God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overcome the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And I'll explain that next week. Here's what I want you to recognize. That concept faith was mentioned eight times. That faith or believing is mentioned no less than eight times in ten verses there. In fact, the whole of Romans 3.21 through Romans chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, could be summed up under the heading justification by faith alone. That whole section could be summed up under that heading. Paul has clearly demonstrated that all men are under sin and have the wrath of God abiding upon them, right? In, cha- in chapter 118 through chapter 3 verse 20, he established that no one will be justified by works of the law. So now we're left with the reality that the bad news is really bad. We're hopeless. And it's here that Paul says this, but now, verse 21, but now you are, you can be declared righteous. You can be justified and redeemed. God's wrath against your sin can be propitiated. In fact, this has already taken place for all those who believe in the crucifixion of Jesus. You can be saved, but how? We've already proved, been proven to be condemned. Our attempts at doing good works to satisfy God have already been shown to be useless. So how can we be declared righteous? How does that happen? We can be declared righteous as a free gift of God's grace to be received through faith in Christ. That's Paul's answer. So I want to break this down and try to make it as clear as I can. I want to put faith in its proper place in the passage. If we look at the passage, the first thing I want you to see is that Christ is the sole ground of our justification. Christ is the sole ground of our justification. That's why the reformer said, sola Christu, Christ alone. He's the sole ground of our justification. Look at chapter 3, um, and starting in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in who? Jesus Christ, not through just faith generally, through faith in Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. And how did that grace as a gift come to us? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God, who's the whom? Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. See, Christ is our justification. Christ is our redemption. Christ is our propitiation. He's everything. He's the ground of all of it. Ultimately, we could sum it up like this. Christ is our justification. Or I could say we are justified by Christ alone. 
Why? Because the ransom price has been paid by Christ. And apart from him, there's no redemption. God hasn't been propitiated. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through me. That's why it also says in Acts 4 that what? There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus is the sole ground for justification. He's it. We can't receive the grace of God apart from Christ's redemptive and propitiatory work on the cross. We cannot because we are still enslaved to our sins and under the wrath of God apart from the cross work of Jesus. And no matter how much, here's the key, no matter how much we believe or how much faith we have, if the object of our belief or faith is not powerful to save, then we're damned. And only Jesus is powerful to save. In other words, what or who we have faith in matters. Doesn't it? If our faith is not in Jesus, then it's irrelevant on judgment day. Completely irrelevant. The text continuously provides him as the object of our faith, doesn't it? All the way through faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus. Two, grace is grace is the sole cause of our justification. So Christ is the sole ground of our justification. Grace is the sole cause of our justification. It's why the reformer said sola gratia. Look at verse 24. We are justified. He's talking about in verse 23, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by what? By his grace as a gift. By his grace as a gift. It means that salvation is a gift of God's kindness and mercy to us. Not a response to something we've done. We did nothing to earn God's mercy. Nothing, did we? If we earned it, it wouldn't be mercy. Grace is actually defined as unmerited or undeserved kindness. God's grace and his grace alone is the cause of his mercy and favor extended to us in Christ. If it was in any way tied to our effort, then it would not be grace. The benefit of Christ's cross work are not offered and applied to us because we deserve them. But because God is gracious. That's why, by the way, faith has to be the sole instrument of our justification. That's the third point. Faith is the sole instrument of our justification. If Christ is the sole ground and grace is the sole cause, then faith is the only instrument of our justification. What does this mean? Faith is the means. Simply, it means this. Faith is the means by which we receive the grace of God in Christ. Faith's not a work that we do. Ultimately, it must be received by faith alone if it's going to be by grace alone in Christ alone. See, if it's done by works, then it's not by grace, is it? And it's not by Christ. The text is clear that faith is an instrument by which grace is received. Paul consistently uses the Greek word dia, which is only important to you because it means this, through. Consistently uses the word through. It's a preposition, 
Um, and this is one of the places where, you know, you talk about how pastors and theologians will say these big words in the Bible, propitiation, which I think I said last week. I got to define for you the word propitiation because it's in the Bible and it's an important theological word. Well, here's where the small words of the Bible matter. Because the big words aren't the only words that matter. The small ones matter too, don't they? And here's an important small word, through. Through faith. Not on, a, not on account of faith. Not because of faith. That would be different, wouldn't it? Through faith. If we say because of faith or on account of faith, then faith is some kind of meritorious work by which we earn the grace of God. But faith is just an instrument through which we receive God's grace. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Most of you probably have it memorized, or some of you do anyways. If you don't, I encourage you to. Look what it says. And Paul is careful about his prepositions. He's intentional about them. He wants to make sure you understand that the, the faith is the instrument, not the ground or the cause. Christ is the ground and grace is, grace is the cause. Look what he says in 2.8. For by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. By the way, this in the Greek um, and where it goes on in the next phrase is it is a gift of God. Both those, those words are in the neuter, which what, what difference does that make? Um, Cause there's masculine, right? When you have pronouns, you have masculine pronouns, you have feminine pronouns, you have neuter pronouns in Greek. Also you have masculine nouns, you have feminine ver or feminine nouns, etc. Every single one of these words that Paul uses in verse eight is feminine. So a feminine pronoun would have to be attached to a feminine noun, right? Masculine pronoun for a masculine noun. Well, here's a neuter pronoun being used for a feminine noun. You're going, okay, well, so which one of these words is it attached to? You know what it attaches to the whole phrase. It's all a gift. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this, that whole thing, is a gift. All of it. Not by works so that no man may boast. Grace is the cause of our salvation. Faith is the instrument through which we receive grace. So how do we understand really the instrumentality of faith? We need to think of faith as passive. It's receiving it's believing. It's opening your hands to receive a free gift. You didn't earn the gift. You didn't even ask for it. It was given to you. Faith is also described in the Bible as seeing, right? That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers in order that they might not see what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. To see is to apprehend. I merely take in what is already there. For example, when I look at a beautiful painting, I don't add any beauty to the painting by looking at it, do I? I merely apprehend it. I'm given a visual gift and I receive it. Many people seem to hold that faith is somehow an act that merits us grace. Um, so they think of God's grace like a well, right? If you have a well. Here's God's grace. God has filled up a well with the water of life. Okay. And what you need to do is get your bucket of faith 
and go over to the well and drop that bucket down and draw out some water. And that's how they see it. Or some people even go further than that and they see faith more like a divining rod. (laughs) You're going out looking for the water, right? Then you're going to get out your shovel and dig the well and then you're going to get the water out with your bucket. Faith is like a channel though. It's not like a, a well where you go try to bucket it out. Faith is like a channel. You guys know what a channel is? What, what happens with the channel? Water just pours down it, right? Faith's like a channel through which the water of God's grace is poured out on us. It's not like a bucket through which we go to the well of God's grace and draw out water. Faith is the means by which, we, by which the free, unearned grace of God is poured on us. God says to you, I want to give you grace and mercy if you'll receive it. And we open our hands and say, yes, Lord. And he pours it out abundantly. Look at John chapter four, John chapter four. Keep your hand at Romans three, but look at John chapter four. There's a story in John four, which um, many, many people are familiar with where Jesus um, in the first year of his ministry has traveled down to Jerusalem He's gone down to Jerusalem for, uh, he's been baptized, right? And all this has happened. He's gathered some disciples. He's gone down to Jerusalem for the first Passover. He's there. He whips some people out of the temple there at that time. He ends up meeting Nicodemus. They have a whole encounter. He's baptizing alongside John the Baptist, although Jesus is primarily preaching and, G- and, and Jesus' disciples are baptizing. The crowds are getting fairly large. The Pharisees and Sadducees are finding out about all this. So Jesus decides to return to Galilee for ministry. So on his way back to Galilee, he chooses to go through Samaria. It's a long walk. As he's going through Samaria, he stops at a well, Jacob's well, and he's there to get some water. He's thirsty and he's hungry. So his disciples leave to go get some food. And while he's there, a Samaritan woman comes up and she comes up and, and you guys have probably heard much of the story. We'll pick it up at verse uh, five of chapter, John chapter four. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. Okay, about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is breaking all sorts of cultural trends here, right? Or cultural mores. Jesus answered her. Jesus answers strange, right? She asks, how is it that you talk to me? Jesus doesn't even answer a question, right? That's what I love about John, by the way. If you go through chapter after chapter, these people ask Jesus a question. He just says, He just goes and gives an answer that absolutely has no attachment to the question. You're going, how does that even relate? It doesn't, it it doesn't. Jesus is like, you're asking the wrong question. Let me tell you what the right, give me the right answer to what the right question would have been. So here's the answer he gives. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, that's what Jesus does. He pours out the water of life on us. He gives it to us. All we have to do is receive it. That's it. Faith is simply Jesus saying, let me pour my grace out on you. And us saying, yes, Lord. That's all faith is. It's that basic. Why do we turn it into this big, huge, convoluted concept? It's just, yes, Lord. Jesus is my only hope. Yes. Please pour your grace out on me. That's it. It's that simple. And he will. He'll pour it out on you and it will well up to eternal life. Well, some object when you say this. So, well, that kind of believing or faith is just too easy. Right? Object. When people, this is the objection. When people hear this message that they can just simply say, yes, Lord, I'll take your grace. No matter what they've done, no matter what they will do. Yes, Lord, I'll take your grace. I believe in Jesus. Yes, please. Pour it out on me. You're my only hope. When people hear that, they're just going to be motivated to sin more. Right? What's the motivation for holiness? What's the point of being holy now? It's just, you know, yes, Lord, pour out your grace. What's incentive for right living is the objection. You know, interestingly, that response to our preaching about faith, maybe the best, maybe the best evidence that we're preaching the right view of justification by faith alone. You know why I say that? Look at Romans chapter six. Paul lays out his argument for faith, justification by faith alone from Romans three twenty one to Romans chapter five. And look at the question in Romans six or he he knows what his objectives are going to ask. He knows he says this. Therefore, excuse me, Romans six. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Or would he continue in sin that grace may abound? Hear that he knows that's what they're going to be saying. Well, Paul. If we sin and all we have to do is just say, yes, Lord, I'll take your grace in Christ and he pours it out on us, then why not sin more so that grace may abound more? It's kind of like this. Um, I have been involved in sin and I'm sure you have also where you're sitting there going, you're about to do it. The temptation is there, right? It's got to hold you. You're going, I want to do this. I want to sin in this way. I, I'm, and and you, you think to yourself, but this is a sin, right? You know. This is wrong. It's going to grieve God. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And then you go, he'll forgive me. Anybody done that? That is the wrong understanding of what we're talking about. But it is what comes out of the right preaching of the gospel of justification by faith alone. That will be the response of the sinful human heart to that preaching, won't it? Well, this is easy then. I can do what I want and God's going to forgive me. They re- People object in this manner because they understand that if it's all of grace, then what I have done or will do doesn't matter. They fear this will encourage people to live wild and sinful lives, thinking that it matters not because God will forgive them anyway. Right? However, this objection misunderstands the nature of God's grace in the first place, doesn't it? 
misunderstands it. If a man really understands the grace of God, he'll be motivated by it to obey, not to sin. However, the objection also takes us to a misunderstanding of the nature of saving faith, frankly. They misunderstand it. For this objection, and, and well, we'll deal more with this objection in chapter 4. I just want to speak, speak about it briefly, okay? Talk about it briefly because we're going to deal more with chapter 4. Faith is not just some empty profession that I know the facts of Christianity or I agree that Christianity is true. That's not what I'm saying, all right? The reformers talked about three elements in saving faith, and I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Three elements. One, knowledge. First element of saving faith is knowledge. You must know something before you can believe it. Right? No man can believe what he has not heard. It's impossible. I can stand here and say blick all day. Blick, blick. You guys, what? What does that even mean? If I don't tell you what... I'm saying, and what I'm saying, if I don't tell you what it means, then it's going to be meaningless, and you don't know it, right? This is why we're responsible to teach people. We must declare or preach the word of God so people can know. Um, yet I think a lot of us kind of hope that we don't have to. I hope, I think most of us think, hope that we can just kind of say Jesus occasionally, or maybe put a little Jesus thing on the back of our car, right? Which I'm not down in that or anything. I don't do it because I break traffic laws and I don't want to be uh, be blamed on the church, but uh, not always intentionally, but <laughs> in the back of our car, or we say to, you know, we're hoping that we, if we say to people that we go to church enough, you know, I go to church in fact, or uh, even more, I'm a Christian that we just expect that they then know what the gospel is because they hear church, Jesus, and Christian all the time, so they must know the gospel. They don't. We have to tell them what the truth is for them to know it. However, knowing it isn't enough. Second, the, the, the reformers also said not only do we have to have knowledge, we have to have assent. And it's the second word they used, assent, which means we have to agree that it's true. People must assent to the truth they've been taught if they're to believe. By assent, I mean agree. That's true, right? People must be able to say, yes, I believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is, did what the Bible said he did, right? If they're ever going to believe. But sadly, many people think that that's where saving faith resides and that's it. Okay. We just need to get people to agree. It's true. Do you know what percentage of Americans agree? It's true. It's like better than 50%, isn't it? I think they try to argue that it may be over 80% kind of mentally assent to the truth of Christianity. I know people, I won't name anybody, but I know people who are friends of mine in, in various conservative circles who will tell me that they believe, yeah, when Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, the Bible's true, but they don't have saving faith. They don't believe in him. Ultimately, they know it. They even assent to the truth of it. In fact, I'd, get, I'd venture to guess there are millions of people who go to church who even agree with the truth of the Bible who don't really have saving faith because they're missing the third element. You know what the third element is? Trust. Not just knowledge and assent, but trust. 
Knowledge and assent are necessary, but they're not all of it. You have to trust. Look, James says in chapter 2 that even the demons believe and tremble. They know and assent to the truth. But demons aren't saved, are they? You can assent to the truth of of the gospel and never rest in it. Never really trust Christ as your justification. Never really believe, never really believe that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Let me me give you an example. I know what it takes to be thin. Do I need to go on with the example? I even agree. (laughs) Okay. I have the first two down. Enough said, right? You guys follow me on that? To have true faith, we must repent of trying our ways and trust God's. Repentance is, after all, a changing of one's mind, which includes returning from our old, or excuse me, turning from our old ways. True faith is trust. It no longer, it's no longer holding firm to my way, but instead trusting what God has done in Christ. That's why faith and repentance are so tightly tied together in the Bible, aren't they? In fact, they're inseparable. They're like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If you really believe, you will repent from your attempts at self-justification. You will no longer say, I can do it. You'll no longer fight for your own ability. You will just relinquish it all and say, I desperately need Jesus. And that's my only hope. And when you understand that God accepts you and pours out his grace in that you'll be overwhelmed because you realize I'm doing nothing and God accepts me. I'm not trying to earn his love or his grace like I do with my spouse or my friends or my kids. I'm just receiving it in spite of the fact that I've sinned against him. Faith and repentance um, just have to come together. They, they, They can't be separated. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer asks um, Paul, what must he do to be saved? Really one of the most important questions asked in the Bible. Two important questions. Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? And the Philippian jailer asks Jesus, or excuse me, asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? You know what? You know what Paul's answer was in Acts chapter 16? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Is that easy? That simple, that basic. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's what we're talking about here. When we believe in Jesus, we are saved. We're forgiven. We're declared righteous. You know, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in the uh, late 1500s, about 1560s, the Trent Council actually went on for, I think, 20 plus years. And it was called the Counter-Reformation. And they were making denials about what the Protestant reformers were saying They objected that the whole faith alone doctrine is a legal fiction. That's what they called it, a legal fiction. Because here's what they said. People who are not justified, not really declared righteous, are being declared righteous. How can a sinner be justified, they ask? How can something that is not true be declared to be true? Well, let me, let me make sure that we're clear where the critique has been misplaced. We do not argue that people who are not in fact justified 
are declared to be justified. That's not what we're saying. I'm not saying you all are not justified, but we're declaring you to be justified. We argue that men are in fact justified in Christ. Jesus is, listen, Jesus is in fact righteous. And our faith unites us to him. As those who are united to him, we are in fact justified. It's not hypothetical. It's true. We are positionally righteous. While it's true that we're sinners practically on a day-to-day basis, it is not true that Jesus was. And we're found in him. Thus, our justification before God is as true as his is. This is what we have to get a hold of. We are not running around declaring to people, you're justified by grace alone through faith alone, period. We are telling them you are justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Because faith is the instrument or the channel through which you are united to Jesus. So when God declares you righteous in Christ, all he's merely declaring is what is absolutely true, that Jesus is in fact righteous. Do you understand that? Your faith unites you to him and he is righteous. He is. I've had talks with people in, in multiple venues And this is the comment that always comes back. This seems too easy. How could God declare me as a sinner? How can he declare me saved? How can he declare me righteous? And what they have to get a hold of is God isn't declaring you in and of yourself righteous. He's declaring you united by faith to Christ righteous. Does that make sense? In other words, God is making a declaration about Jesus and we're united to him by faith. That's why our salvation isn't tied up with us. It's tied up with him. It's all of grace, all of Christ, all of faith. None of us. We just get to rest in it. Let me pray. Lord, I I thank you um, that you have forgiven us in Christ and declared us to be righteous in him. Lord, that it's nothing that we've done. We can do nothing. And Lord, we are rightly condemned. But in Christ, we are declared righteous because, Lord, you have chosen to unite us to your son through faith. We're so thankful for that. We continuously recognize our need for you. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. The band would come forward.